2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Uh, Very, very quick uh, note just to say, Evan Ratliff, co-host of this podcast, has written a book. It's called The Mastermind. Publishers Weekly called it a true crime classic. The book is fantastic. If you have gotten something out of this show over the years, if you've gotten something out of the incredibly nuanced conversations that Evan has been having about book writing on this show, buy a copy of the book. It's a way to say thank you, but also the book is great, and you will enjoy it because Evan wrote it. Mastermind, out now. Link is in the show notes. Here is the program. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, greetings. Hey. How are you guys? I'm, I'm pretty good. Who's on the show this week? Uh, we have a repeat guest, the rare third-timer club. Ring the special gone. <laughs> David Grant. Uh, David Grant is back on the show. He is a uh, author. He's written many books. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker. Uh, he is the best I, I, he was uh, our number one guest uh, on our list when we first uh, thought about doing this show. I never thought we would have uh, had him on the show three times. Yep, that was the first one of these interviews I ever did. It's David Grant in a conference room at the new, old New Yorker Max, office. Max nearly peed his pants. <laughs> it's true. I was very nervous. Aaron, I believe uh, right before that interview, I said to Aaron, hey, man, you want to just come do this together? I, I'm not sure I could do it alone. And you were like, go talk to David Grant. Is it true that um, David Grant is like an NBA super fan now? I will tell you, uh, this interview is great. It was really fun. He put out a book um, late last year called The White Darkness, uh, which was a, a, an adapted version of a, a New Yorker story he wrote about a guy who um, went across Antarctica by himself. Insane. Insane story. Yeah, it's uh, nuts. But uh, we talked about that, talked about a whole bunch of other things. Uh, this interview is really fun. But I will tell you that for like 45 minutes before the interview and 45 minutes after the interview... All David Grant wanted to talk about was the NBA. That man is an NBA obsessive. Do you think we could like fake that we have some kind of a new NBA podcast and just go hang out with him and talk about the NBA sometime? I have a friend who has an NBA podcast, and I immediately emailed him after talking to Grant. I was <laughs> like, "You need to get David Grant on your show." Man has lots of like deep New York Nick rumor theories. <laughs> it was uh, it was fun, but it was it was it was a it was a blast to talk to him. Uh, as always, if you've got some uh, deep 
theories uh, about the New York Knicks that you need to get out. There is no better way to do it than on a mail email, not a mail, an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it easy to set it up. You don't even have to pay until you reach a certain number of subscribers. Check them out today. And now here's Max with David Graham. Hey, David Grant. Hello, Max. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be back. You're in somewhat rarefied air in the three-time guest category. I feel very privileged. I got to tell you, man, every time that we do this, it makes me think about that, that first interview. Like, basically, any time I talk to you, it makes me think about that first interview, which is really like a, it's become a real marker of time for me. Yes, there was no studio. You carried the mic with you. I think we found a little closet somewhere to do it. <laughs> yeah, it was one microphone that I like put in the middle of the table, and I did that whole like Chris Farley impression. It was, it was pretty bad. Uh, but anyway, it is great to have you uh, back. Um, you and I had a plan, but I'm going to switch the plan on you slightly. Okay. So you send me a note, and you have this new book out called The White Darkness, which is an adaptation of a, um, a New Yorker story that you did in 2018. And so we were like, we're going to talk about that. And then I had this idea that maybe we could go like really deep on some classic story of yours and try and figure it out. And the one that we settled on, which was your idea, was the Squid Hunter. And uh, so that was our plan. Uh, but here's the thing. I read them both like back to back last night. And I don't believe that they're separate conversations. Oh. <laughs> I think that they, I think that those two stories are incredibly uh, connected. That's probably so. Is my opinion, having read them back to back. Uh, so I think I might want to talk about the ways in which they are connected. You got it. But let's start. If you can, can you give me the like white darkness synopsis? Synopsis. Yeah, that's the, uh, the way you say the, that word. Yeah. So the white darkness is about a remarkable British man named Henry Worsley, who was a polymath. He was an artist and a photographer. He was an amateur historian. He was also obsessed with polar exploration, and he models himself after the polar explorer Ernest Shackleton, and ultimately at the age of 47 then decided to see if he could become a polar explorer himself, Henry Worsley did. And he did a couple expeditions, and then in 2015, he set out to do what his hero Shackleton had failed to do a century earlier, which was to walk across Antarctica from one side to the other. And whereas Shackleton had planned to be part of a large expedition, Worsley planned to do it alone, unsupported and unaided, which meant he had no food caches planted along the way to forestall starvation. And he would have to pull all of his provisions on a sled without the aid of dogs or kites. And nobody had ever dared to try this before. It was a real, it's uh, like an international story when he was doing Is that when you encountered him? Yes. When I, you know, I've always been fascinated by polar explorers ever since I was young, probably like a lot of people. Well, <laughs> like Worsley too, like he, Shackleton came into his life when he was like six years old. Yeah. He was somebody who, uh, probably a little like me, wasn't so into his studies, but would disappear into the library and find great books on adventure or mystery, which was kind of my thing. And Worsley, uh, when he was young, found this book about Ernest Shackleton uh, when he was young and uh, began to read. He became captivated with polar explorers, but especially with Shackleton. And then he of course, discovered that he had this special connection to Shackleton because one of his distant relatives had been a member of a Shackleton expedition. 
So you started seeing, like, I assume it was like Outside Magazine was writing about him a lot. Like, when you saw those stories, I mean, part of what I want to talk to you about is, like, how do you decide when you're going to, like, get involved in something mm-hmm. like that? But when did you when did you encounter it? And then how long was the gap between when you were, like, following from afar and when you decided to yeah, take Yeah, so it I, I read about it, and then, um, you know... The, there's a tragic turn to the story, and I don't know how much we'll, we'll get into that, but I reached out uh, to the family after uh, his attempted solo quest, and uh, I sent them a note, probably. It's that kind of awful thing that reporters do. I always, it will, it never gets comfortable. Um, I feel like we should just divulge the tragic turn, which yes. is uh, that he died as a result of the quest, but not while he was on it. Yes, um, and so I reached out to the family at that point to see if, you know, if they might be willing to talk. How do you do that? You know, I sent a note. I actually just looked up. I found a website uh, for Worsley's expedition and there was a contact person. It wasn't actually the family. It was this contact person, I guess, who had been dealing with press during the expedition and then just sent him a note and saying, you know, I don't remember what I wrote, but just obviously expressing condolences and saying, you know, if the family would ever be you know, open to talking, I would, you know, um, you know, I don't, even now I'm stumbling to get the yeah. words out because it's kind of awful. Well, it's, it's hard. It's, like, no, I mean, it's that's awful. part of why it's, I'm asking. Yeah. I mean, it's better than the door knock, uh, yeah. which, you know, when you're a young reporter working, you know, at the newspaper and, uh, you know, you're doing something like that. But, but you just try to be as respectful as possible. And you try to be very brief. And I am not pushy. And so the family wrote back or the representative wrote back a, and a friend who was a friend of the family and said, you know, look, the family's just not ready. And I said, oh, course i fully understand and if they ever change their mind you know please feel free to reach out to me Mm -hmm. and then a year went by and i went on and worked on other things i don't remember what i worked on but i did other stuff and um after about a year i was kind of in between things and i decided i would just send a quick note again to the same person and uh, just say just was going to follow up and see if the family might be open now to talking and I fully understand if they're not. And this time they said, when do you come to London? And Hmm. so I went to London. Uh, The family is kind of remarkable. Um, They're kind of, they were in the midst of their own grief and kind of their own Antarctica of trying to deal with that grief of losing this man who they so dearly loved. Um, And they share with me his diaries, his commonplace book. Um, I probably got as close to a subject's consciousness as I've ever been in that piece, even though for obvious reasons, I never had a chance to meet Henry Worsley. When you show up there, what's your sort of first step? My first step is just to obviously to be respectful, given that kind of situation you're walking into. I mean, every story you walk into is different, but you know, if you're going to cover a NBA game or a basketball game, we were talking about NBA games before off the air, uh, you know, it's not a traumatic situation you're walking Mm. into. And so the first thing is just to be very respectful. And then, you know, I just really ask fairly open-ended questions about Henry, about what they remember about him, tell me a little bit about his life and just kind of begin the conversation and then let that conversation hopefully grow over days. And, and kind of come back and, and develop a relationship where there's a, a trust and you know each other. And so you kind of understand each other and, and their perspectives. But I think it's a gradual process. I mean, I, I don't think you just walk into someone and say, give me your story. You mm-hmm. know, it's just not, at least that's not the way I. Do you approach. start small? Like, do you start on the lower stakes stuff? 
I do to some extent. I mean, some of it's just the basic biographical information. You know, you just say, tell me a little bit where Henry served in the army because Henry was this army officer. What about his family life? I mean, I just got almost basic autobiographical material because that then endlessly leads to what they're thinking about. And it kind of gets the conversation started, which I think in many ways is the most important thing. And, you know, reporters are supposed to be dispassionate. And I think you have to be dispassionate in terms of how you evaluate evidence and information coming in. But I don't think you always have to be dispassionate in dealing with people. And, you know, I, I found his family completely remarkable and um, dedicated the book to them. Yeah. I'd never done that before outside of my family. Um, I was really struck by that. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of the thing that interested me about this story, you know, you talked a little bit about what drew me to it. You know, part of it was this remarkable feat of endurance. It's also about the nature of leadership and says something about the human condition, I think. After working on Killers of the Flower Moon, which we spoke about in our last conversation, um, which was this sinister crime story in which you, know, you have people pretending to love you in order to steal your money. I mean, this was a case where the Osage Indians of Oklahoma were serially murdered for their oil money, and these were these inheritance plots, and people would marry into the family, steal their money. There was just so much deception. It was such fraudulent love, a kind of fraudulence and evil, to be honest, I just could not fathom, and I spent five years with that. And so you don't always know what a story will be about. And so when I was first started the Henry Worsley story, you know, it was a story of this feat of endurance. But as I met Joanne and I met the family on that day, for me, it really became a love story and it became a genuine love story for which for me at that point in my career or, or what I had been working on was came as just a huge relief to deal with kind of these genuine emotions of two genuine people who just cared about each other, you know, and, and I often, I tend often what I've worked on last to kind of go kind of completely right. the opposite direction. Go like fill in the <laughs> yes, other part of yes, your like, uh, yes. pie chart. Yeah, yes. I feel like that, yeah, in some ways, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that, but I imagine it's sort of like um, after Flower Moon that like this sort of restores your faith in humanity a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I have one question about, one more question about going to London and how you start talking to them. And I assume that you're going to downplay this and push me away. But does your work like precede you in that situation? Do they know the kind of stuff that you have done? Is there a reason that they want you to try and tell their yeah. story? Like, you know, I don't know. I'm sure they had not heard of me before. I did send them a story when I, there was some opening of interest. I said, this is the kind of work I do. And I, I sent an example of my work. I think I might have sent them the Lost City of Z article mm -hmm. that be, the, before it became the book. And you know, spoke a little bit about the New Yorker and its fact-checking. You know, I usually do that to give people just a sense that this is going to be a responsible, serious piece that's not going to uh, be exploitive. Yeah. Um, so I do do some of that. Um, I try to be pretty upfront with people, um, you know, about the process. And I also always try to let people know, you know, during the process that, you know, you're beholden to the truth. And that's complicated because you're not beholden to a relationship. Um, so it's, it's reporting that transactional nature reporting right. is, can be discomforting. But part of the ways I deal with that is to try to be upfront about that and just say, I'll always give, 
you know, I'm sure there'll be something you may not like in the story, but I'm always very judicious. I'm always fair. I always make sure you have your perspective. I'm very careful about all the facts. I go over everything with you. And so to let people feel comfortable about the process. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned that long ago in my career when I did a, a piece on John McCain. For the New Republic magazine, yeah. and um, what was the name of it? Like, I, I think it was called the Hero Myth. Right, which right, right. I don't right. think he liked very much. <laughs> that was a play. It was a play on Joseph Campbell um, and this kind of need for myths and, and heroes in our society and what that meant. And it was at a time when there really had not been much critical coverage of McCain. I spent a lot of time on McCain. At that point, he was running in the primary against uh, George Bush, and the only two reporters out there were me from the New Republic magazine. And David Brooks, <laughs> uh, a reporter with the Weekly Standard. <laughs> and it was the two of us. We had come out to spend some time. This was before McCain's primary attempt to take it off, and it looked like he had any chance against George Bush. Were you guys buds? We were buds, but we got to know each other because of that. Uh, he was very sweet. Uh, David was very nice on the, on the campaign. And uh, so we, we. Perfect that you were both named David. Yes. Yeah. Very confusing yeah. for people. But I, and I wrote a piece a little bit about the relationship between the press and, and McCain. And I think it was one of the first pieces to kind of, you know, I think by today's standards, it'll probably be considered, I don't want to say a pub piece, but a kind piece. But it was also a piece that was tried to be beholden to the truth and showed the complexities of his character, showed his ideology that was often overshadowed by people's interest in his character. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. You just used the phrase beholden to the truth twice. Help me understand the difference between like taking a shot and beholden to the truth. You know, it's like, it's for me, I guess I, I am by nature, I'm not a snarky person, but if I report things that I find, I am beholden to try to reflect those pieces of the reality. Mm -hmm. So I don't see them as shots. I see them as being, you know, to the best of my abilities, and I'm sure, and the best of the information I can get, sometimes there's just information beyond my purview. So it's not like I ever get all the truth. That's like, you know, an illusion. But of that fragmented partial truth that I'm able to gather through the reporting process, you know, if from that person's standpoint, who you have now spent a lot of time with, they will look at one basket as being, you know, positive, and they may look at one basket as not being positive. They don't want you to share that other part. You now have a relationship. I spent some time with McCain. I, you know, we got along well, on the, and and yet, in that moment when I sit down to write up those facts and tell them, I have to separate that relationship. Mm -hmm. And I, I and 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 so, but I didn't in the process. Of, I was very young, and I didn't in the process kind of give McCain and his people that sense of what was coming. And I kind of caught them by surprise, and I think, and and that upset them. And and how did you deal with their upset? Uh, you know, you 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 just kind of I don't remember. Uh, you did you know, it rattle you at all? You, well, it does because you don't. I mean, I don't like when anybody's upset with me. I mean, <laughs> I I expose criminals, uh, you know, really bad people, and you know, you talk to them, and it's so comfortable when they, you know you you know you're ending some people's you know you, you kinda, know you kind of hope they like you at the you're end. You kind of maybe ending their criminal enterprises, but you know you've had a relationship with them. You know you've spent time with them. So he's a decent like, guy. Yeah, yeah, he's like you know I'm uh, so um, it's always uncomfortable, but you always learn. I mean, I'm always learning. Everything I do 
is a learning process. And when you start out, I mean, you know, how you do this and the methods you use. And I didn't go to journalism school and, and you're trying to figure it out. And not only that, you're trying to figure out a way that works for you, that you get better at and, and that suits your temperament. I mean, I tend to be in the Joan Didion school of reporting where I tend to just disappear in the room and just watch and observe. I don't actually like to have lunch and interviews with people. That's not really my method um, too much. But I learned from that. And one of the things I learned was just to let people have a better sense of what, what is coming. So they just don't pick up the magazine and be surprised and just that they're prepared. And also they've had made sure they've had a chance to respond. Which I, And does that mean calling out specific things that might make them uncomfortable to see in print or does it mean like yeah this is generally like where I, I'm very works. I'm very I tend to go over almost everything and I do it for factual reasons you know I go through uh, you know the New Yorker has the best fact checkers in the world but I do my own now my own fact checking and I always say to people you know I'm not going to change anything just because you don't like it but if there is something that you literally do it yourself on the books on the book, because even with the New Yorker, even with the book, I'll do my own fact checking, but I'll always hire a fact checker. Yeah. I do just to, because there's just so much. Yeah, and, I was, was going to say that sounds completely insane. <laughs> yeah, no, there's so much. But I, I'll go over like with, let's go back to the white darkness, for example. Yeah. I go over everything with the family and I make sure that I've got their quotes right. And I, I allow people to respond. I, I always say I won't change anything just because you don't like it. But if you have something, let me know and let me see. Are you ever Are you ever surprised by... What troubles people? Yeah, especially when you're fact-checking with sociopaths, <laughs> which I do. Um, fact-checking with sociopaths is, and I will, they will be nameless. You can go read the body of work, and you can decide who am I by. And I'm, I am by far not speaking about Henry Worsley, who was a deeply admirable man. But if you want to go back and look over the body of no, work. this is a fun game. We should play. Like, <laughs> which uh, is the sociopath. Yeah, yeah who's the so, sociopath? And I have reported on a fair amount of people, let's just say, I won't say they're sociopaths, let's say they have sociopathic tendencies. Let's be softened. <laughs> that slightly <laughs> since I'll fact check myself in live time. Whatever. If you, yeah. if you, whatever you need to do to temper your sociopathic yeah. uh, but when, descriptions yeah. When on you here, fact check this stuff, it's really funny. It's, you'll be like, um, so I just, I say you stabbed the person eight times and you had the knife and you did it over there. But I, I'm being a little bit hypothetical here, but, but not totally. And they'll be like, oh, yes, yes, no. And I also, I hit them by the lung, not, don't say the elbow. I hit them straight on into the lung. And then from the lung, it turned right. And you're just like, okay, 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 thank you. Okay. <laughs> noted. And, okay. Uh, noted. And then you say something. And he had a slight build. And they're like, slight? You call me slight? <laughs> <laughs> I, and this is only vaguely hypothetical. This is actually pretty close to it, actually. And I just was like, okay, I won't, you know, I mean, you, how much do you weigh? <laughs> so clearly, like, the, the presence, but, like, the, the actual, you know, the malignancy. The gruesome yeah, murder. Yeah, so the, the actual fact-checking process is just, uh, you know. and But one of the reasons I also do that is another thing you learn when you do more investigative reporting, again, where you may be exposing deeds, you want to make sure you don't say somebody is 162 pounds and they turn out to be 160 pounds. And then they can say, oh, right. they got everything. They wrong. got my weight wrong. Classic I'm, they, New Yorker. Two pounds. Right. Right. Or like they said, they said I had, you know, dark eyes. My eyes are light brown. And you're like, OK. So you just you want to make sure also that is all. But also because everything is interconnected, everything is interconnected. And you want to make sure that the piece itself, every little brick in the piece is fortified because mm -hmm. you don't want to take away from what the piece is really about by, you know, saying that someone's shirt was 
someone stabs someone in the elbow yeah, rather than right, the right. Uh, lung. Yeah. yeah. So and but I also have found that in that process, and I guess I don't know if we're going off on tangents here, but in that process, you can learn things. So I remember when I was doing this with a story I did about called the Yankee Comandante about an American who fought in the Cuban Revolution and was ultimately executed by Castro. And I was speaking to the woman he fell in love with in the in the hills, uh, this incredible woman named Olga who was in her 70s, you know, small and just so tough and so uh, uh, charismatic. And um, they had gotten married in this like kind of impromptu ceremony. And I said, well, you know, I wanted to see, well, did you have a ring or anything? And this was after the piece was written. And she said, oh, no, we, we were up there and we, we there was no way we could have a ring. But he reached up and he just took a leaf and then he wrapped it around my finger. And I it was just the most precise, beautiful, distinctive, idiosyncratic detail you could ever get for reporting. And that came in the fact-checking period where mm -hmm. I'm just kind of going over stuff. And so you you get stuff and you amplify stuff um, that actually deepens a story and then hopefully fortifies it. That was a great tangent. There's, there's, <laughs> no, there's no problem at all with that tangent. Um, all right, let's go back to uh, to the Antarctic, though. Yeah, that's a cold place. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd been into it since you were a little kid? I have. Oh, just kind of explorers. I mean, I've always been um, the kind of books – you know, I suppose you get influenced the kind of stories you write by the kind of books you read when you were young. And I used to love, I mean, I read Sherlock Holmes and Adventure Tales as a kid. Uh, those were like Hardy Boys and, you know, Have you Nancy ever fiction? When I was very uh, young, well, in kind of college era, I tried my hand at fiction. I was really bad at it. Um, <laughs> so. I just don't have a good imagination. You know, I need people to tell me what they said in their dialogue. I have a really good ear when I hear people say what they say. But I can't just come on. I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of in awe when I read novels. And it's interesting for my pleasure, I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I mean, I read newspapers, stuff like that, but I mostly read fiction. Hmm. And how does that fiction, how do those novels that you're reading, how does that stuff inform your work? Well, one, I think the best way to become a better writer is just to read. And I think in particular to read the best writers. So they could be nonfiction writers or fiction writers. But I try to read people who are just godlike in the way they write. And in some ways, it's kind of intimidating because you're like, I really should hang it up now. I mean, you know, you, you read something from, you know, Willa Cather or, you know, Faulkner. And you're just like, what am I doing? What you're just saying reminds me of this thing that we talked about the last time you were here. We're talking about your book, uh, The Killers of the Flower Moon. And, and um, you told me that um, you had been like crazy stuck, couldn't figure out how to structure it at all. And then it was reading Faulkner that unlocked it for you. Well, that was a great relief. I mean, to be honest, that structural breakthrough, which is kind of different, was really the key to unlocking that process. I, I was truly stuck. When I say I'm stuck, I mean, I was stuck. I just, I just couldn't figure out how to tell that story. But you know what happens? I mean, I'm in the midst of it right now. You stuck right now? I, I mean, I kind of know how I want to tell the story, but I, oh gosh, don't make me go down this road. No, um, we're talking about it. Now <laughs> I know why you wanted to come on the show. <laughs> but I am in the midst of a new book project and, you know, you, it's a little bit different about being stuck, I guess, but there is, I've spent a year gathering information and um, there is that moment of terror about 
kind of did I take a wrong turn? So uh, I think I know my way out, but a wrong turn within the project, or was the project itself a wrong turn? Yeah, you just you're, I, you're just plagued by doubts and fears, and it's you know I don't think I ever you never get over that. It's kind of a motivation, but. I wish I could get past the terror. There's two terrors I find as a writer. Tell me about the two. (laughs) This is like therapy. (laughs) The two terrors I find about writing are one, the finding the subject matter. I've always been insecure as a writer, and so I always you can't still be insecure. Oh, you're always that never goes away. So the the finding the right subject matter to me though is you know you're you're only as good as your story. And if you if you find the right story, that story can take you. So that was kind of the thing how I developed as a nonfiction writer. I was just, you know, when I was like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. I just kept saying, let me find the right story. And if I find the right story, the story will get me through. And so for me, there's that terror of how do you pick a story? How do you find that story? And it never gets easy. It's really hard. And it's hard to know when to plunge down a hole and when to abandon it, you know, to avoid the Vietnam situation. Where how you're... do you, how do you do that? Are you better at it now? You know, I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. In magazine stories, I feel like I'm pretty good at it because there's less investment. I'm pretty ruthless about discarding them early on. Book projects are so hard to find stories that will have the length and dimension to hold a reader that I think it's harder and then the second terror is just writing. You know, you just sit at the computer and go, God, you know, how can I express this or find the precise words or, or so the imagery to show something? Which terror are you currently feeling? Both. <laughs> <laughs> what happens? Both. Can I come back in a year? <laughs> yeah. What What happens when it's the combo? Are you you're seriously doubting whether you chose the right project? I really like the project and I'm being kind of elliptical, which is probably not very gratifying to, ah, to right. listeners, but it's just partly I'm also always superstitious about stories that if I talk about them too much, they become the stories I never write. I mean, the best stories I tell at cocktail parties are the ones I never write. <laughs> so I'm better not talking about them too much until I get into them. For me, this one, one of the challenges is just finding, I actually think the story is great. It's just, can I find the material to tell it? Because, mm-hmm. you know, that's the difference, obviously. With what so this do. one's really a reporting question? It's, yeah, very historical. I somehow I I told myself that after Killers of the Flower Moon, I would only do books about, you know, very contemporary where everybody is alive. And somehow I ended up in the 1700s. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do yourself uh, the same break that you did with the. Uh, yeah. No. The yeah. Story. Yeah. You got to give yourself. A break, yeah. That's my man. one piece of advice to anyone reporting. Don't go to the 1700s. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to just we're going to keep going on the tangents. Right. I have, now I have a new tangent question, which is uh, what is your like go-to cocktail party story that you never did as a magazine article. Oh, wow. What's the like uh, the one that never quite landed, but that you find yourself telling? You know, it's funny. So I kind of stopped telling them. So now you've got me because I've literally, if I have a good story, I literally won't <laughs> tell it. I've shut it. I've shut it down. I mean, I really have. I um, And so now I... Because they get stolen or because you're worried that... A little uh, bit of everything. Like yeah. you just... And then if you do talk about it too much, it becomes... It starts to harden. And I think one of the things that's so important also about stories is, and maybe when we talk about, if we talk about a little bit more on the white darkness and the squid, is that these stories are journeys and you don't really know where they will end and where they would take you. Just as we were talking a little bit about meeting on the Henry Worsley story, initially I saw it as a kind of an adventure story and it really for me became a love story. And you really want to be kind of open-minded to that. And so I think sometimes too, if you just keep telling the story, it just kind of hardens. The best example I have of... Not so much talking about a story, but the story I probably learned most about 
approaching stories was actually the squid hunter. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily the best story I've done or anything like that. And it's lighter and it's, um, but my journey on that, you know, you take pieces from each story and I took something from that story. All right, we can talk about the squid hunter. I just want to acknowledge for the record that you wouldn't tell me any of your cocktail party stories. <laughs> I, just want, I just want that. I just want that to be clear. You have to. Well, here's the problem. You're only serving me water right now. So I know. The, you're really the process isn't Listen, working. Man, it's twelve twenty-five in the afternoon. I will start drinking if you want to start drinking. All right, let's talk about the squid hunter. First, give, give me the background on that one, and then if you can, like, why was that the one that you wanted to talk about today? Partly because you know, I think. There are stories to talk about that are kind of informative where I can, you know, talk about, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon. I mean, the importance of the story, uh, the, the story about the execution of Willingham is such an important moral story about, you know, a likeliness man was executed because of failed human perceptions, because of deep flaws in the judicial system. And so those stories the importance of those stories are the content in many ways. And, um, but since we were talking about, wanted to talk about process, the squid hunter is one where I just kind of learned along the journey a little bit. And that was a story about, well, I just kind of walk you, maybe walk you through it a little bit because yeah. a little bit, it just kind of told me. So that story came about as a complete lark. And I was new to the New Yorker magazine at the time. And uh, I was falling behind schedule. You know, we have these contracts where you have to produce so many words a year. And I was new. I was so excited to be at The New Yorker. But I had fallen behind. I had a little kid. And I was really feeling stressed. And I didn't have an idea going back to that terror of what's the next story. That's the worst part when you don't have one. It's got to be particularly uh, exacerbated by it being, like, very early in your New Yorker tenure, too. Yes, yes. Like, yeah. you, you get that gig, and then you're under, under-delivering. That yeah, you're under-delivering. Exactly. And you got to produce. And, and so I was, like calling up anyone I knew. Do you have anything? I was like, it was just going to every cocktail oh, yeah, party. You I, could, I was, I was stealing just, people's no, stories. I was basically just cold calling. I was like, who's in my, who's in my contact list? I don't have any contact. So I was like, my wife, who's in your contact list? Give me some contact. But I called a friend uh, of mine in Boston, uh, who's an attorney. And I said, yeah, I'm really, you know, you have any legal cases or anything? And he said, well, what about the giant squid? Nobody's ever found that. And at first, I literally thought he was kind of joking. And then I was kind of always saying, and then he went on and we talked about some other things. But afterwards, I was like, the giant squid? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's a real thing. And I was like, and uh, so I did what we all do. I checked the internet and said, giant squid. And at that time, I think it was 2003. I don't remember when I wrote that story. Came out in 04. 2004, yeah. And uh, I said, sure enough, there is this creature. It is real, the giant squid. But nobody had ever seen it alive. And so I thought, oh, that's really interesting. But then I was like, well, but how would you ever tell that story? You can't tell a story about an animal. I mean, you could write a, a little history you know, page or something, but you could never write a narrative about some animal that no one's ever seen. And I thought, well, okay, so that's kind of dead. But then I was doing a little bit more looking and I said, oh my God, there are squid hunters. When I was doing research, I was reaching someone who said, oh, this, this guy's searching for the squid. And then I found another one. I said, oh, this person's searching for the squid. And before I knew it, like I'm in this subculture of these squid hunters. So I thought, well, that's a way to kind of tell the story. And then the next challenge became, well, which squid hunter? And how do you tell that story? So I started calling my squid hunters. And again, just for you know, the, the giant squid is this kind of a, a remarkable creature. I mean, it's got eyes the size is basically tires and it's it's Bit literally like the biggest eyes yeah the biggest a, eyes the biggest the most complex yeah. eyes. and then it's got you know it's it's uh, tentacles can stretch as long as a school bus i mean and so and yet 
no one had ever seen it alive. People knew it existed only because dead ones had floated to the surface, and then it had been part of myth and lore. And if you read Moby Dick, you know, there's a... It's a quasi, like, Loch Ness monster Yeah, quasi Loch Ness, but it's real. I mean, that's the crazy thing, but it's got this kind of mythical quality to it. And because no one had ever seen one alive or ever captured one, uh, it had become this kind of quest among these uh, marine biologists and squid hunters. And so I started calling them, and I one challenge is just the practicality of it. Well, who who's going out on an expedition? Like, because I want to go with them. And so it turned out there was a squid hunter in New Zealand, and he had come up with this kind of very counterintuitive process. His name was Steve Shea, Shea and his, his method was he didn't want to capture a giant one. He wanted to capture a baby because he figured during spawning period, there'd be a lot more babies floating in the water and so he would, you know, have more chance of being able to find one. They'd be easier to catch. They wouldn't be as deep in the water tunnel. My sense reading the story was that in many, many ways you loved O'Shea, but that part of you just got such a tremendous kick out of the fact that he had this like totally counterintuitive idea for how to approach oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah. It was just kinda yeah, it was just wonderful. And and then and so then I did this thing which writers have a tendency to do who work for employers in the in the magazine business or newspaper business. I went into uh, David Remnick and uh, Daniel Zaleski, my editor, was there. And I, you know, I had to tell them, you know, what the story idea was. Now, this was before some of the more difficult financial times that we all live in in the journalism business, but still flying somebody to New Zealand, which is where Shea was planning to go out. It was a bit of an endeavor to send a reporter off. Especially the new guy who's behind on yeah, his contract. Yeah, the new guy behind on his contract. And so I went in there with, uh, I don't know quite if I had maps, but I went in there nervous but and bullish and said, you know, look, I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going with this marine biologist. We're going to search for the giant squid. We're going to catch a baby. I will be the first reporter to have ever seen one. We're going to capture it. He's going to then grow it in captivity. I will be the first to document. This will be really important. And, and so they said, great, go do it. So I, I really sold the story too well. And uh, so then I got on a plane and I got to New Zealand and I met Steve, and he's quite a character. And I expected us to have like some big, you know, yacht we were going out on, or some kind of big boat with robots and all yeah. sorts of summer, some sort of like scientific boat, some, 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 some scientific boat. And it turned out he just had a skiff. He kind of basically bankrupted himself over the years looking for the giant squid, and he didn't have uh, millions of dollars that one would need for one of these vessels. And the only other crew was this uh, graduate student who got seasick. <laughs> And it was the three of us. And I said, okay. And he said, uh, I should warn you, mate, there's a, a bit of a, there's a typhoon coming. <laughs> and I said, well, that's okay. We'll just, we'll wait. And uh, oh, he said, oh, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> he said, we can't wait. He said, you know, the babies only hatch at a certain period and rise in the water column. If we don't go now, I'll have to lose the whole year. I can't afford to, we got to go now. And I was like, we go out in a typhoon, and we're going out in a basically like a skiff. <laughs> you're, you're, we're going out in your piece of shit boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and with the grad student and me. <laughs> and, uh, and then on one other, so then we're just driving down the highway, hauling the skiff on his trailer. Everything is rattling. Signs are blowing away. Trees are coming down. And then he, t- we finally get to the place we're going, and it's getting dark, and it's it's nighttime. We said, oh well, we can only look for the baby at night because that's when they. <laughs> That's when they're in the water. So you got to, we, if we, that's whatever. I don't even remember. That's when they rise in the water. Column. Okay. Honestly, at that moment, right? You're, uh, you're like going out on a skiff into a typhoon. Are you like, this is going to be great for this story? Or are you like, 
I've made a terrible mistake. So I'm I'm teetering. I'm totally teetering. I'm terrified. I was actually really scared. I was, but I was like, well, this could be really good copy. <laughs> so you know, you take your chances. And I was desperate, as we said. So, but that I was teetering on this balance. And I'll tell you when the balance tilted was when we got in that boat. We start to head out to sea. The waves are just enormous and the skiff is kind of right. It's like you're like a cartoon character stepping off a cliff every time. The boat would just go off a cliff and then it would fall down. And you can, he can barely see it. At one point, the sun at that point was going down. We are going out just as night was coming on. He points to me. We all had flashlights. And he points to me and he says, what color is that buoy? And I can't remember if I said it was green or red. It was a channel marker of some sort. And I said, it's green. He says, I said, can't you see? He said, well... He was deaf in one ear from a diving, I think, accident. And then he said, well, I'm colorblind, too, and I'm deaf. And then he starts to aim toward this channel. Steve, please forgive me. <laughs> he starts to aim towards this. I can't tell what they are. I just see all the water from the ocean swirling in a typhoon towards this point. I realize it's between these massive rocks. It's some kind of little passageway. And he's aiming the skiff right through it. And all the water is just funneling through, you know, it's blowing. I don't know how, you know, hurricane force winds. These waves are enormous. <laughs> and I suddenly, it's getting darker. And I suddenly take the flashlight, I shine it in front of me. And I see a wall of water about 20 feet high in front of us. I turn around and I suddenly look behind us and I see a wall of water about 20 feet high. <laughs> and then the boat starts just flying in this tube everything we have is flying my notebook is gone i had a recorder that's flying across the boat we had some sandwiches are flying and steve looked at me and he said you won't find this in new york will you mate and that was the point where i said i'm doomed <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, teetered into that my... was where i was like i really i and i literally had a moment like is my fearless captain fully in control of all his senses <laughs> you made it out we made it out and we got to a spot. We somehow got through the chute and then he has this contraption special net he has built using plastic Coke bottles and all these kind of elaborate things to try to capture the baby squid. And there's only three of us. And so, you know, my Joan Didion style of reporting, which is mostly just to sit around and, you know, do nothing and be lazy and watch while other people work and labor. That also went out the window on this trip because there was only they put me to work. Because yeah. the, the, so the three of us would basically from five, 6 p.m. until the crack of dawn. We're just dropping nets, pulling them in, dropping nets, pulling them in, driving out in the boat, dropping nets, pulling them in. And we never found anything. And each night we would come back and we would follow the same process. By the fourth or fifth night, I can't remember how many now, but we were just bleary-eyed, kind of despairing. Our hands were cold and, and had blisters. And eventually, at one point, we pull in one of the tanks these nets that have these kind of containers in them and we look in the container and there's a little eye looking at us and steve o'shea says you know i think that's i think that might be the baby architeuthis which is the scientific name for a giant squid and this and the graduate student said you know i think i think you may have found your dream squid and We've been out there for nights. We're so tired. The seas are still really rough. And we have to now hardly transfer it before like other krill and stuff in the container might kill it. We have to transfer it to another container. We start pouring it into the other container. 
And then at a certain point, when we look in that other container, Steve O'Shea starts to say, where is it? Where did it go? And the baby giant squid seemed to have disappeared to the point where I was so tired and so exhausted, I didn't even know if the whole thing had been an illusion. And I remember Steve O'Shea, I've never seen a look of such despair. This is a man who had literally devoted years of his life to this obsession, to this Ahabian obsession, had such an utter look of despair on his face and almost just fell backwards. And in that moment, I just kept thinking, I'm totally screwed. I am completely done. I was just like, I've been out here for three weeks or whatever because it was a long trip. We've been out there for weeks. I got the New Yorker to pay for me to come out here. I'm new on the job. And we had it and then we didn't. And did we even have it? I was like, how would you ever write that? And I remember when we came back that night to our little cabin we were staying in and then all of us were just beat and then we still had one more day in the trip and I just said you know I can't go I just I can't do it anymore I was just in my own thoughts and I was so tired I mean we barely slept and he's and he kind of said well this is what happens with everyone they kind of give up hope and he went out and of course he came back the next morning and hadn't found it and that was a moment where you confront a story and you say the story is a total mess and I really didn't even know how to write it I didn't even how would you even write that moment how would you even convey it like what kind of payoff for that as a story and it was only afterwards as I was really thinking about it that I realized the story I had concocted in my head and pitched was total BS it was this like Hollywood fairy tale that just isn't true to life and that this was the truth and the truth was actually more interesting in terms of telling us something about human beings telling us something about the human condition here was this man who had devoted his life who had sacrificed everything for this obsession and here he had it within his grasp and it got away and that pain was so palpable and so I learned just a lot on that story because I was still young starting out doing this narrative nonfiction. And when you go in to pitch a story, you often think you know what the story is. And the story really turned out to be completely opposite. It was kind of a disaster. And yet that story, I think, not only was it true, but it really was much more interesting. And it's why I don't write fiction because the fiction that I would come up would not be interesting. Because he would have caught the squid? He would have caught the squid. It would have been a little sweet you know, a little nice Christmas tale, you know, and this was actually getting something much deeper. And so it really helped me to slow down when I approach stories, to slow down. Yes, we have some concepts, some inkling of what stories are. Of course, that's why we set out on them. And, you know, it's not like we're blank slates, but you read a few things, you have a conversation, and then you kind of think you, and you have got to be open-minded because it took me a long time. I honestly thought I didn't have a story. I, I literally thought that story just had collapsed and it hadn't. The story was actually revealing itself, but I couldn't see it. I literally could not see it in the moment. And it took me a while to kind of just step back 
and shift my focus to what I had really seen mm -hmm. and accept what I had seen and process of what I had seen and get rid of what I had conceived. So the way in which that affected your journalism is that you were going forward sort of less beholden to your concept of what the thing was. Yeah. Yeah. That you, you know, every, every one of these stories are a quest. And I think that certainly overlaps with a lot of stories I do, but I'm interested in people who are in quests. And I think every story is a quest. Every story in itself is a quest. Every story in itself is a quest. It's an odyssey. And you don't know how that odyssey will turn out just as you, the people who are in the story don't know how it'll turn out and you have to be open. Killers of the Flower Moon, I began that story, that book, as a traditional crime story, thinking it, the conception I had for the story was it was a story about who did it. And there came a certain point in the research, and I think we talked about this last time on the program, where I started to find documents and speak to enough OSA's descendants when I realized, no, that conception is wrong. This is really a story about who didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And it was about a culture of complicity and a culture of killing. And so that kind of archetypal crime story that I had initially kind of thought it would be, the evidence completely sabotaged and undermined. And so stories like the giant squid were the beginning of me really learning to not lock in and you know you and i write a lot about investigators in my stories i'm fascinated by investigators because i think all of us in some ways are investigators we're all trying to perceive the world around us and make sense of it and everything i write about is involves people whether they're professional investigators or non-professional investigators trying to make sense of what's going on in some way and in the willingham case which was about this man from texas who was sentenced to die for allegedly setting a fire that killed his three children. And then the evidence turned out to be just based on complete junk science. I saw how investigators really locked in and had tunnel vision and then started to kind of curb and shape the evidentiary material to fit the outcome. And I think that's kind of a warning to us all. And it doesn't mean that I might not fall prey to it, but I think it's a human weakness. It's a tendency. Mm -hmm. And we're all fallible. I'm very open to the idea of fallibility and my own fallibility. And that's another thing that I've changed is just being aware of my own fallibility. But you want to be conscious as much as that fallibility because if you're conscious of it, you're more likely to at least address it. I can understand how that impacts your work, being more open to what actually happens, not deciding beforehand what the story is going to be, even though you're doing all this research and sort of every time you take one of these projects on, it's a pretty big swing. But how has that, how has it impacted your life outside of your work, that realization? Well, I have a lot more humility as a reporter and even in terms of my own life and in terms of other people. I write a lot about people who screw up make misperceptions, stumble, can't see the end, trying to find their way out. And I think going back, we talked a little bit when I was younger, I was much more cocky in the sense that I really did look at reporting as this way where you could always get to the absolute truth, explain everything. And I realized how hard that is now. And I realized in my own life how hard that is. And I think to some degree, the influence in my own life is that I'm much more interested now. I mean, it sounds really cheesy and a cliche, but I do see it as much more of a journey. We all know how the journey ends. We all know how it ends. That's the one thing we know. And so the rest is just kind of going along a lot more. Mm -hmm. I'm not being so fixed on the path. 
my weaknesses I get to consume with my stories. And I think that takes away from some of that other parts of my life and other parts of my journey. I mean, that's literally like the way that people described Worsley, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, and one of the things I liked about Worsley was he was very open and kind of frank in his self-assessment. And he would speak about how his obsession consumed him a lot like O'Shea. Um, and they both had real consequences to their personal lives. And, you know, Worsley talked about that and addressed that. But one of the things I wanted to explore in that story is the consequences and the reality of that obsession and how it affects people. Because mm-hmm. I, again, I think it's getting us away from fairy tales. You know, there's so many admirable qualities about Henry Worsley, but his obsession has real consequences to the people who are left behind. What connection do you feel with him and with O'Shea? I mean, in what ways do you see yourself in those two people? It's funny. I often think about the people I'm drawn to as being completely different than me. I'm very sedentary by nature. I'm uh, I'm overweight. Um, I. You look great. Thank you, sir. I uh, you know I don't. I, I live a fairly banal existence. You know, family, kind of very much within the confines of the fabric of ordinary life. And then I write about these people who are breaking out from this kind of ordinary fabric because of some compulsion. And I suppose I would probably need all of Vienna to figure out why I am drawn to these people, but I am. I mean, I think part of it is professional, which is just, they're really interesting. (laughs) And they're because of that compulsion, because they're being drawn outside the fabric. and, And that just is, you know, there's a reason why Ahab is such an interesting literary character and why we always return to him. So I think that's part of it. I think I suppose I see something in the process of storytelling in them, I think. And like I am drawn to people who are investigating or investigating something about themselves as kind of part of the journey of storytelling. And, you know, Worsley is so interesting to me because, I mean, I certainly don't have his bravery or his courage. I mean, he was just such an admirable, he was really kind of cultured and he was incredibly fearless. He was a great... Um, devoted father and his wife said something or kind of believed something because she always thought that Antarctica was the most dreadful place in the world I mean she that's more like me I would never want it I mean I have no desire to go to Antarctica I mean I hate the cold <laughs> um, I do I hate it so that's why it's always odd when people ask what do I see and I was well I don't want to go to Antarctica <laughs> uh, but you know she always believed to kind of you know borrow the phrase from the novelist Thomas Pynchon that we all have in Antarctica you know some place we go to seek answers and so she gave her blessing to these expeditions, even though, uh, you know, it threatened to take the life of her husband. It's just so turned out in the case of her husband that the place he went to seek answers was Antarctica itself. It was not a metaphor. <laughs> um, um, but I think all stories are, to some degree, your own Antarctica. And I'm always trying to learn on these trails about other people, which hopefully just illuminate things about existence. Worsley was somebody who modeled his life on Ernest Shackleton. And Shackleton was in many ways a failure. He did not reach the South Pole as he had tried to. He did not trek across Antarctica because his ship, the Endurance, became famously frozen in the ice and sank. But he always managed to get all of his parties back to safety. And Worsley had modeled his life on him and modeled himself partly on the family model of Shackleton, which was by endurance we conquer. 
And whenever he was in trouble, Worsley would always ask himself, what would Shackleton do? And he gets to a point at the end of his expedition, toward the end of his expedition on his last quest to walk across Antarctica alone, more than a thousand miles across an environment where temperatures reach minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit, winds blow at hurricane force, you know, one misstep, you're in a crevasse. He had gotten to a point where his fingers were getting frostbitten. Every muscle throbbed and ached. His feet were bruised. His toenails were discolored. He could barely put one step in front of each other. And yet through his force of mind, he had gotten to almost 100 miles of the end. And history was almost within his grasp. Or he liked to call it a rendezvous with history. And he asked himself, what would Shackleton do? And in his case, his life would very much depend on the answer. And as he holed up in his tent because he couldn't move for a while, he pondered that question. And he had always thought that the gospel of Shackleton was persevere, by endurance we conquer, never give up. And he had never given up on anything in his life. And yet I think in that moment, he came to terms with what I think is a much deeper meaning of Shackleton, which is often overlooked in all the Shackleton leadership guidebooks, which was to reckon with his own limitations, and to reckon with his own failure, and to realize that there are some things that are not conquerable, least of all Antarctica. And so he actually calls for a rescue plane, and he is flown out. And he calls his wife and says, you know, I'm having a cup of tea and everything is going to be okay. And then it's discovered that he has this infection in the lining of his tissue. And before his wife, Joanna, could get to him, you know, she hears that one of his organs had failed. I think it was his liver. She said, well, you can live without a liver, can't you? And then she gets a call and says, you know, he's on the operating table. Well, he, his kidney has failed. She said, well, you can live without a kidney, can't you? And then he dies of complete organ failure before she could uh, get there very tragically but he you know one of the things i really you know i think that's partly lost in his death is people say well he wasn't shackletonian and i said no i actually think he actually did come to terms and understand shackleton and he did come off and that was one of the great tragedies to me but i i do think in life and in reporting reckoning with failure is a part of the process and reckoning with your own limitations. And I think that's probably the arc and change I have as I get older, just as Shay doesn't get his squid. Um, that failure is such an integral part of life and what you make of it. And too often, we're always focused on the success side. And I don't always think the success is teach us as much as the journey and, and, and having things elude us. When was the last time you failed? Oh, I, I look at every, I mean, this. I'm being completely honest and I say I look at everything I do as a failure in terms of every story I've ever written. Some I think are better than others because I always have some model, some ideal that I want to try to get to. I actually, I'm weird. I don't actually think there are many ways to write a story. I think there's only one way. I, I, it's totally weird, which is totally BS, but it's my own you know conception that there is some hidden organic structure and way to tell a story. Not that there's only one way to tell any story, but literally every story, there's one perfect, immaculate way to tell it. Yes, and that's the way. And then you're trying to find it and carve it and excavate it and tell it. And then you you get close, and then you realize, well, you, you can't find this part out, or you don't have godlike 
omniscience or you, you didn't sadly have subpoena power for that wiretap and you recognize you're not going to get all the way there and your writing will never be that immaculate. And so it's kind of a failure. And so it, part of it, I always look at it as like a confidence game because, you know, I do know writers like Remnick, God bless him. You know, he just, I think it's like for him, it's just going for a walk. He just goes in his office. Michael Kelly, who was an editor I had at the New Republic, who uh, sadly died uh, covering the Iraq war. You know, he was similar. You know, he could just go in and he, he could just write. And I don't think it involved. Uh, but for me, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not so simple. <laughs> but, oh, I was just going to say, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. But it's a confidence game. So I look at each project. It's like you build yourself up. You have to you create a confidence game that this is going to be the one. You're going to do it. And then you fail. And then you got to do a confidence game again. Maybe that's why I write about confidence artists all the time. <laughs> Well, also right. Those people also betray some of the um, some of the things you're talking about earlier, with like there being some empirical truth to things. Yes. But here's the thing, man. Here's the here's the thing. The experience I had last night, reading those these two stories back to back, they're both about people who were obsessive, who sort of initially set a goal that seemed so nearly impossible that if they were to accomplish it, there would be a rendezvous with history. There would be uh, some acclaim that mm-hmm. would come from that experience. And then the deeper that they got into trying to accomplish these almost impossible feats, the acclaim was not any longer the goal. It was some personal quest. And then you know, neither of them made it. And, but they're so ambitious. There's like a level of human ambition to it, which is in like the very upper echelons, the possibilities of human ambition, literally walking across Antarctica by yourself. There's this moment in the book where like he gets to the, the literal South Pole and there's a base there and there's a structure and people there and like he could go in I know and, and take a bath I know. and like have, have a cup of tea have a cup of tea and he won't I know he sets up his tent in the self-imposed exile as though anyone on earth would think that was a failure yeah. other than him yeah and it was striking for me reading those two things back to back a how similar the two of them yeah. seemed and there are these ways in which hearing you say like there's an immaculate way to tell every story and knowing you to the extent that I do and the the, degree to which you go in on these projects. I don't know, man, some connections there. (laughs) Felt a little similar. (laughs) I'll give you a paycheck afterwards for my analysis. (laughs) I don't know. You tell me, does that sound like, uh, does it sound like there's something there? I do think to some degree, obviously there's no comparison in that the feats that Worsley was trying to do and writing a story. I, I think we can tend to mythologize the process of writing story. A lot of it is just kind of sitting in archives, reading materials and uh, having, you know, Chinese food or whatever and, uh, you know, spending some hours at a desk. It's fairly, um, you know, the difficulties are are minor in the ink by any comparison. But I do think that they are to some degrees quests and both the quests of what you're trying to learn. And I think each one of these people are trying to learn something and I do think that's where the similarities exist, that we're going to follow these people on their quests and on their odysseys in search of certain answers. And I think there is an elusiveness 
to some degree to what those answers may be, which reflects these people's lives. But I suppose, you know, as the storyteller, as a reporter, you know, we all have a Z. You know, we all have some city of Z or city of Z that we're searching for. And there's something about those quests where we're either trying to learn something about others and through others about ourselves. And then I think of each story as a Z that you never find. Is there some other thing that is your like Z or is it just trying to tell one of these things perfectly? That's a really good question. Uh, sadly, I mean, to some degree, I, I think what draws me to reporting is to just learn about life and to learn about people. I'm pretty shy and antisocial and, you know, if it wasn't for my wife, probably wouldn't have too many friends. <laughs> and so having reporting is a way to get me out of that and to meet people and see parts of the world and learn things and also to put myself in situations I would never be in going in the Amazon, getting on a skiff. I would never get on a skiff on a hurricane on my own. But because I'm following a story, well, that's a pretext to go do that. It's a pretext to go hump through the Amazon. And so it's kind of a way to make myself live in a way. And so I think that's part of what appeals to me. But for me, the dream is always to write a perfect story. But I've also now know that I never will. You never, I will never write a perfect story. And it's just now a question of, you know, how bad it will be. <laughs> no, but not, you know, but how close you can get to writing a story that you feel fulfilled that kind of organic form and kind of reach that ideal. I also try never to go back and read stories again once I'm done with them. I read them a thousand times before they're published and then I try never to go back and read them again. Because you feel like they'll like haunt you. Yeah, and it's funny. And sometimes, like if you're going to talk, so I read the Squid Hunter, which I hadn't read in 15 years or whatever. I, whenever that story came out, and it's always interesting the process of reading stories. Sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised, like oh, that wasn't so bad. And then sometimes, like oh wow, geez, <laughs> <laughs> that was really you're really trying hard on that one. <laughs> so if on some level, like uh, going through this and writing all these stories has made you realize, like. The point is not the perfect story, but the point is the journey. Do you feel like um, you don't have to play quite the same confidence game with yourself to get yourself up to do them? You know, I think the hardest thing about reporting or telling stories is, at least for me, and again, I think everyone's probably different, but, you know, so much of reporting is so private or just dealing with the Worsley family who, again, you know, Joanna and Max, their son, and and Alicia, their daughter, and you meet these people. But it's a kind of a private journey in some ways. And I think the hard part is the public side to reporting. It's both a nice thing, because sometimes people say, oh, that was good, and you feel good. But it's also uh, the difficult side. But I think that always contributes to, I think, one's doubt. And while I'm more, I think to some ways that they haven't gone away, because I think as I gotten older, I'm less cocky in the sense of I now realize just how damn hard it is, how hard it is to get the story, how hard it is to write it. I've done it enough to realize where I'm going to fail. And so I think in some ways, sadly, <laughs> the doubts haven't gone away. One would think they would. or I mean, I'm more confident in some of the mechanics because now I kind of, some of the mechanics of reporting I've been doing long enough, but confidence setting out on a journey. I, I'm just, I'm really 
much more conscious of how difficult it is. And it's why I have such admiration for others. I mean, I really do. I mean, who, who do it and do it well. Do you feel, do you feel pressure to do it given the kind of like financial stakes of the projects that you do now? Like, I feel like they're very high profile and like the sums are reported and like, (laughs) there's all this kind of like riding on it. Does that interact with those like doubts and pressures or is that kind of just like part of it? No, I think it does. I think just more that, you know, when you work on stories, you don't expect them to, you know, you don't know what kind of life they'll have or, or be read. And so, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, you know, I really, I remember my wife, you know, Kira just saying to me, you know, literally it was five years and, and, uh, and there was a periods in there where it was pretty tough going. And I remember when I was done, she just said, you know, you just, all that matters is you wrote something you believed in and that you thought was important. And I think that's really good advice. And you tell yourself that and you, you know, but you, the, how it will be received and, and then we'll find an audience. I don't think that goes away, but I would say like one of the things I learned about Worsley and one of the things I learned about other writers is you can fail and you can, you can write if, you know, it, the most important thing is to get off the ice <laughs> and whether, and it's okay to fail. I mean, it really is. It is, you know, and I've seen so many writers I admire, you know, when I go back and I read their work and, you know, whether it be Cormac McCarthy or, you know, whoever it might be. And I, God, that was a, just not a good book. And then they wrote some of the best books I've ever read. And yeah. so I tell, you know, it's okay. You know, failure, I think is part of the problem. I think the key is just to be willing to fail. All right. So you're going to figure out your way yes. through this project you're stuck on. Yeah, I feel like this was like a therapeutic session here. I thought <laughs> we'll we were get, talking about, we'll I was get, just going to talk about the cold of Antarctica. You got me. <laughs> we'll get, we'll, you'll, you'll uh, navigate these twin terrors and then you can come yes. back on the show and we'll talk about how you found the, uh, the uh, perfect immaculate story. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Max. Man, thank you for doing this. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks very much to David Gran. The book is called The White Darkness, and uh, that idea that there's, like, one true perfect way to tell a story, it's going to be, uh, like, somewhere between rattling around in my brain and haunting me. For a long time to come uh oh and also someone with an nba podcast get david grant on your show it'll be amazing we'll see you next week why do you run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. 
You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.